Today's sermon text is Ephesians 4, 25 through 5, 2. It can be found in the Bible and the rack in front of you on page 978. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another and tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father God, the word is open. And make our hearts the same. Humble us here together so we can get past all of our pride that might keep us from hearing from you. Give us eyes to see the beauty of this passage before us. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to understand this word today. And may we be so bold to ask that even as your word is preached, that you would increase our love for one another as members of Philadelphia Baptist Church and other brothers and sisters in Christ here. And as we have just read, there is a staggering command you've given us and we cannot do it on our own. So assure us, Father, of your presence with us. Fill us with joy as we think of your son and may today be the salvation, the day of salvation for those who don't yet believe. In the name of your son, we pray these things and by your spirit. Amen. I am becoming more like my dad as the years go by. Thankfully, he's here this morning. My dad is here this morning. My mom. So glad to have you guys. Uh, A few weeks ago, I was. Uh, I was reminded of this uh, of this fact that I'm becoming more like my dad. We had some people over to the house and uh, we had chicken shawarma and we had rice and veggies. And uh, and I, I love it was so good. And I looked forward to after the meal because there were pl- there was plenty of food. I was going to make a plate for myself and I was going to take it to work the next day because that's good eating. Right. So I had looked forward to it. Well, after everybody had left, I'm making a plate for myself, and I, I look at the, 
the pot where the rice was and the rice was gone. This was a problem because I knew where it was because my wife has a phobia of some sort of rice, leftover rice. So I knew the rice was in the trash can. And so what I did, I'm not proud of it, but I went to the measuring cups, got a plastic one cup measuring cup, and I went to the trash can and I opened the trash can and I reached down and I scooped a scoop of rice that was self-contained. There was nothing touching it. It was just, it was rice. It was a huge pot of rice. I can't explain how big the pot of rice was. And I got some rice that was completely uncontaminated and unharmed. And I grabbed it and I slowly walked over and put it into my plate that I was taking to work the next morning. And I have never felt closer to my dad than when I did that. He would probably say he would never do that. But my dad has this spirit about him, this uh, I'm just going to blaze my own trail. I'm going to make it work and it's all going to be all right. And I love that about my dad. So it's not such a terrible thing to become like my dad. I give him a hard time. I'm probably every time he's here, I'd say something about but I, I love you, dad. So turning out to be like my dad would not be so bad of a thing. Well, today's passage In today's passage, it dawns on us that we are becoming like our father in heaven. And that's a really good thing. So we've looked in the first three chapters of Ephesians, and this is where we find ourselves in Ephesians 4, 25 through 5, 2. And we find ourselves here. But so far in the first three chapters of Ephesians, what we've heard from Paul is a beautiful picture of God's sheer grace over us. What he's done for us in Christ. Chapters 1 through 3, I've heard it summarized as the wonder of grace. And then chapters 4 through 6 is where we've picked up the last couple of weeks. Could be called the walk of grace. Or it could be called the first three chapters, the wonder of being alive in Christ. And then the last, the second half of the the book of Ephesians, chapters 4 through 6, could be called the walk of being alive in Christ. Paul has been flying us in this plane 30,000 feet above above the uh, above the floor above the earth and he's seen he's shown us the beauty of God's grace. We have an amazing picture of the of him and his plans for us. We're told that he's a wealthy God, but but not wealthy like you might think. Of course, he has lots of riches. Of course, he he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But it tells us in Ephesians that he is rich in grace and he is rich in mercy. And my favorite part so far in Ephesians came in chapter two, where it says, says that we will be exploring his immeasurable grace. He is he has lavished his grace on us and he tells us. That we will, in the, in the coming ages, he will show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards Christ Jesus. That tells us that the future is not boring. We will forever be exploring his grace because it's not measurable. There's no end to it. So those of us who are in Christ have an overwhelming future beyond the grave. So we've been saved by sheer grace we were dead, but we're made alive. Don't turn out, tune out here because chapters one through three give such vibrant color to the picture of what life actually looks like for Christians. 
We were walking in darkness, following after Satan. We were trapped in the vicious cycle of the patterns of this world. We were sons of disobedience. We were, but, but we were adopted as sons of God. He breathed life into us. He took us out of the grave. He resurrected us so that we could walk in a new life. A life brimming with the life that only God can give us. It's a life that cannot be extinguished. Not now and not ever. So Paul here lands the plane for us. He brings it down out of the clouds and lands it where we live in our daily lives. He's going to get extremely practical today. It's it's become common for us to say, whenever we have a baptism, you were buried with Christ in baptism. You were raised to walk in a new life. But you may say, but what does that really mean? Well, Paul is going to tell us this morning. It's not just religious jargon. This is a biblical reality that now exists for everyone that gets baptized in Christ. And so in Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, we're actually given a humbling report from Paul that we are his workmanship. that We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul intends to teach us how to walk. In practical terms. So in the section before us today, he's going to he's going to help us renew our minds so we can lay aside the old you and the old me before we met Jesus and put on the new us. He gives this new life of ours and this new calling arms and legs, providing specific examples of what this life looks like. So what's it look like to walk in this new life in Christ? So in the passage before us, we're going to notice a threefold pattern. You may have noticed when Ashley read the the text. First, we're going to look at we're going to look at five sinful habits to break. And those are balanced by five godly practices to pursue. And then we're going to see corresponding motivating reasons to change. Some might say theological reasons for change. So we're going to look at five sinful habits to break, five godly practices to pursue, and the motivating reasons to do these things. So first, the sinful habit. The first sinful habit to break is lying. He says, put away falsehood. Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, you'll notice right out the gate the word therefore. It actually points us back to verse 25. Uh, sorry, in verse in verse 25, it points us back to verses 22 through 24, where he tells us to put off your old self and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God. You were created after the likeness of God. Another way to say this is you were created in the image of God. And because of this reality, you're to put away falsehood. Stop lying to one another. He would also write something similar to the church in Colossae in Colossians 3, 9 and 10. He says, do not lie to one another. It's interesting. He's talking to Christians, right? But we struggle with lying. He tells the Colossian Christians, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. This apparently was an issue for the church in Ephesus, and it's an issue for us today. So what happens when you lie? If you think about it, you betray yourself, your true self, 
the new you. You're betraying that. The new reality. And you belittle God. Because if you're to reflect the image of God now, that you give, if you are to reflect the image of God now, that you give the impression that, you're, you're giving the impression that God is a God who lies. So if you are made in His image, you are made in the likeness of God, you're the new you, but you go back to the old habit of lying, you're showing other people that God is a God who lies. We should remember that Satan is the father of lies. He's the father of liars. John eight forty four. Jesus actually says he's uh, Satan is your father and he is the, the father of lies. He's talking to the religious leaders that missed the whole point of Jesus. That may have been who you used to be, but that's not who you are now. Matthew Henry said it this way, he says it's the character of God's people that they are children who will not lie, who dare not lie, who hate and abhor lying. And Paul counters the sinful habit of your old way of life with a godly practice to pursue. So the sinful habit, lying, the first one we see here, the godly practice to pursue. Did you see it in the text? If you look at it, speak the truth. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? Well, we tell the truth because God loves us and he tells us the truth. And aren't you glad that he loves us enough to tell us the truth, even when it's not pretty? Paul has already told the Ephesian Christians to speak the truth in love a few verses earlier in verse 15 of chapter 4. Moms and dads in here, when your child is old enough to deliberately lie to you, which starts early, let me encourage you to address it immediately. Don't sleep it off just because you're tired or it's been a long day. Get down with them. Remind them that we are to tell the truth to one another because God tells us the truth. And he tells us the truth because he loves us. We're to be like him in this way. We're reflecting who God is, our father. And it makes God happy when we act like him. So Paul moves on to tell us why this is important. This putting off and this putting on. The motivating reason for this change. He uses the word for, if you saw it there in verse 25, the word for. It gives us a heads up of the reason why. The reason is not so that we'll become better people. The reason is not because it's right, though that's nothing to shake a stick at. Of course, it's good to tell the truth because that's the right thing. The reason is because we are bound to one another. And that's the motivating reason for change. We are bound to one another. Did you see it? And the text says we belong to each other for we are members one of another. This is critical in understanding this section of Scripture. Paul is not setting us loose on a moral self-improvement plan so that we'll just be happier people. Nor is this God giving us instructions to make us better, to, to help us get our act together. The goal of sanctification is not happier, healthier individuals. You are no longer an isolated individual 
who is separated from your brothers on an island of self-reliance, you are becoming a person who is bound together for life with your brothers and sisters. Oftentimes, when we hear of someone that's going through a really hard time or they're struggling and they're, they're just having a difficult time, we often hear people's deepest hopes for others who are struggling. And they may say something like this, I just hope he finds his peace and that he'll just be happy. You've kind of pushed somebody and to, the, to, to where their deepest hopes for that person comes out. And he's, I just want to be happy. You may have felt this way for some of your own children. I, just, I want them to be happy. I hope he finds his peace. But God will not settle for such a small dream for you. You were to stop lying. Yes, for Christ's sake and for the sake of others, you are to start telling the truth because God tells the truth and you're his image bearers. You're to put on the new self created after the likeness and the image of God and his true righteousness and holiness. But do you see the otherness in this passage? The Holy Spirit got a hold of Paul and he showed Paul the emptiness of living for one's self. And showed him how all of life should be spent on behalf of the good of others. So if you want to grow in your love for your church family. The first step isn't to look around and try to find things in this church that it has to offer. That you go, oh, that's cool. I I like that. That's what I love about Philadelphia Baptist Church. Though that's not irrelevant. The first step is to take steps within your own heart to rid yourself of falsehood. Don't tolerate little lies, either your own or your children's. And if you've attended church for many years, you can probably even recall times when lies within the church have caused trouble, have caused heartache and sadness, friction, disunity. Christian, don't think that you're not capable of doing the same. Put away all falsehood. Tell the truth to one another because, after all, that's who you are now. And you belong to one another. So, how do we learn to walk in this new life? The first first simple habit to break is lying. The godly, godly habit to pursue? Start telling the truth. Why? You belong to one another. And now we come to the second simple habit to break as we learn to walk in this new life in Christ. And that's sinful anger. Sinful anger. Put away the the old habit, sinful habit of sinful anger. Look at verses 26 and 27 with me. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. It's a very interesting verse. It says, be angry. Be angry. Doesn't it? You have to read it again. It says be angry. It doesn't say don't be angry because anger is a sin. I've taught youth for for many years now. That makes me sound like I'm really old, but I I started teaching youth probably when I was way too young to teach youth. Um, One of the things that continues to surprise me is they're hesitant to say that it's okay to be angry. It's not a sin to be angry. Consider this. I read this in a commentary. It says, anger is a sentiment that is implanted in our nature for righteous purposes. 
Anger is a sentiment that is implanted in our nature for righteous purposes. Anger is simply an arming of our passions quickly against evil. So what would good anger be? Good anger is based on God's character and it's mingled with grief. It's based on God's character and it's mingled with grief. You should get angry when you see injustice, Christian. It goes against the character of God. It steals the dignity of people that were created in God's image. And when you hear of senseless shootings where a child is killed. Or you see road rage that causes a horrific car accident. Or when you you see TikTok videos of fools walking up to people for no reason, stealing their pet or punching them in the face. Walking into a store in the broad daylight, grabbing as much merchandise and, and, and leaving as quickly as possible. You should be angry when you hear about child trafficking or fentanyl killing our youth or organizations spending millions of dollars to essentially obscure sexuality and confuse kids just to make money. There's a fire in the belly of Christ that yearns for streams of righteousness to flow. And he longs for the dignity of human beings to be restored. And those who have his spirit, the spirit of Christ, have the same fire in their belly. And the same longing in their hearts that Jesus did. So it's not wrong to be angry. But as John Piper put it so well, he says, there is a time to get angry. The time to stay angry is short. There's an easy passageway from what is right to what is wrong in the indulgence of anger. I heard an illustration uh, a couple years back from Tim Keller. He just passed away. And it's, uh, it's about a father. It just hit home with me. All right. You probably can't guess why this would hit home with me. It's a father who blows up at his children when he's trying to watch his favorite college football team play football. He'd been planning on it all week. Been looking forward to eating good food, enjoying the game. But towards the end of the day, as the game was about to start, the kids start acting a fool. It's time for them to go to bed, but they get out of bed. They start deceiving their father and their mother. They were supposed to be reading, but they came out and they needed more water. Water is such an essential thing for kids after it's time to go to bed. They get into an argument with each other. The kids are fighting. It requires the dad to get off the couch and go take care of it. And what does he do? He blows up. Have you ever been there? It's sinful anger. But what about the new reality that we are to embrace? What about the godly practice that we are to pursue Pursue reconciliation. That's the second thing. Pursue reconciliation. A godly practice to pursue. He says, don't, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, should you have blown up at your kids? No. But you can't change that fact after it's already happened, can you? What you can do is humble yourself. Speak to them. And what might that look like? You can say, I am mad at myself for how I responded to you, but I'm mad at you. And here's why I'm mad at you. These things that you are doing are serious. 
If you learn that acting that way is okay, you're going to have trouble for the rest of your life with your friendships, with school, with marriage, with parenting. It will affect your whole life. And that was wrong. You were lying to me. And when you do that to your daddy, you do that to God, and that is a sin, and it's serious. And you need to seek God's forgiveness for how you disobeyed your parents, and then seek our forgiveness too. But I also need to tell you how sorry I am that I blew up at you the way that I did. I'd been looking forward to the game all week, and when I blew up, for, blew up at you, I showed you that I cared more about that than I cared about you, and for that I'm truly sorry. Your daddy needs forgiveness. Your daddy needs your forgiveness. Will you forgive me? You can say, I hate this. It's not me against you. It's me and you against this habit. And it will destroy us unless we do something about it. Moms and dads, be thankful for the times that you're convicted by God when you blow up. He just didn't fly off the handle never to return. That God convicts you when you blow up and when your anger runs hot and you realize that you responded in a hurtful way and not in a constructive way, you can pursue reconciliation. And not just for your own soul, but for the soul of those that you love. Now, the motivating reason to change. We're told, give no opportunity to the devil. Verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. Satan takes advantage of our anger and he does this great harm. Many of you can relate. In other words, the devil will come to you and encourage you in your bitterness and in your resentment. Patting you on the back at night when you lay down in bed and you're just seething. And he's adding reasons why you should be, why you're justified to feel that the way, the way that you feel. He'll whisper, you know, you're right. She's wrong. You, you owe her nothing. And until she comes back to apologize to you, that's it. It's on her. John Piper said this, Satan seeks a gap called grudge. And if he finds it, he will enter and ruin life with all manner of bitterness. If you knew a venomous viper was set loose in your child's bedroom after he told them good night, what would you do? Would you tell him to sleep it off? Would you close the door so that it can't get out? Why do we believe that Satan is less harmful than that? As long as it's possible. Depending on age, maturity, etc. Do not let your child go to bed seething in anger, mom and dad. Do not let your head hit the pillow at the pillow at night. The pillow, the pillow at night. If the person next to you is seething in anger, or is wounded from painful words that you spoke to them, why? 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 Why not? Because the great serpent is crawling into your room and is ready to get to work, and you cannot be content. To let it do so. This is this isn't just for family dynamics. This is written to a community of believers. So this is for the covenant community, God's people. Stephen Ball said it this way: the focus in verses in verses twenty five through five two is clearly on the peace and unity of the covenant community. 
believers are informed here in verse 27 that this peace is not a trivial earthly matter, but it's part of a wide, a wider affair with cosmic involvement. The church is a portal to the realm of heaven and of current and future realities that must be kept in mind by its, by its members for the enemy of peace and of the work of God wants nothing more than the church to be ter- torn apart with fury, tumult, hostilities, divisions, and all other malevolent, malevolent effects of unresolved anger. And we read a few verses later, to put it away from you. Put all malice away from you. All wrath, all anger, put it away from you. Do you want your marriage to be destroyed? Go to bed angry. Do you want your children to be distant from you and grow up distant from you? Make it a habit of letting them go to bed seething in anger. Do you want to watch this church be dismantled or picked apart? Then do not resolve the arguments and disagreements among you and do not seek reconciliation with one another. Listen to what the Spirit of God is saying in the text to us. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. That's the second sinful habit to break. Sinful anger. And the godly practice to pursue is reconciliation. Why? Because Satan wants to destroy us. And that brings us now to the third sinful Habit to break as we learn to walk in this new life in Christ. Stealing. If I took a poll in here, many of you would probably say, I don't know if stealing is really one of my vices. I don't know if that's one of my old habits and I'm I'm having a hard time relating to Paul here. Verse 28 says, let the thief no longer steal. But rather let him labor. It's possible that some of the believers in Ephesus were struggling with this. Maybe they had lost their jobs because of their their new commitment to Jesus. And in needing to take care of their families, it had given them the temptation to steal. Stealing says that my needs are more important than anyone else's. And it also says, God, I don't trust you to take care of me and my needs. Possibly some of these were shopkeepers in Ephesus, and they were cheating their customers. And Paul's warning them against all manner of wrongdoing by force or by fraud. Another form of this is idleness. It's the lazy way to steal, is it not? So the sinful behavior of stealing in all of its forms must stop. And the godly practice must be put into place. Pursue honest work. So the godly practice to pursue is... Honest work. It says, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Christians in here, you should be among the most hardworking and the most honest people at your office. That doesn't mean that non-Christians can't be hardworking and honest. That's common grace from the Lord. But the old you is gone and the new you is here. The old you, when you were looking out just for yourself, the old you is gone. When you cared more for yourself than you did for your employer or your employees, the old you is gone. When you would dishonestly cut corners to get ahead or you would intentionally make another coworker look bad so that you would look better. That's the old you. That's put it away. The new you is here. Pursue honest work. But what's the motivating reason to make this change? The needs around you abound. Because the needs around you abound. Look at the text. 
doing honest work with his own hands, verse 28, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Notice the prohibition of stealing is based not on the notion of respecting other people's property, though that that is a part of it. And that's a good thing. But solely on the motive of helping others in the community. Pagans would rob others of what is rightfully their own. But Christianity leads me to give others what is rightfully my own. I can say over the years that I have been encouraged and my wife has been encouraged by saints, most of the time anonymous, who have given to me and my family when they saw a need of ours. I can tell you that the world may look at this behavior and shake their heads and think that it's foolish to give away so much, but the heavens do not. My wife's grandmother, Nanny, what I call her, I call her Nanny. She's 90 years old. She's been a widow since early 2000s. Nope, 98, sorry, longer than I thought. She lives by herself in a little garden home here in Birmingham, and she has become a great light on her street and in her neighborhood. Do you know why? Bread. Bread. Sourdough bread. Every week she spends hours kneading sourdough. And if you know anything about this process, you know that it takes time and effort. Some of you have had some of the sourdough bread from Nanny. It takes time and effort. She has to knead each pile of dough 99 times, right? <laughs> she said 99 times. It's a lot. It's very, what'd you say? 90 times, 90 times. Oh, look at me exaggerating up here. 90 times kneading the dough. And she makes somewhere around 6 to 12 loaves of sourdough bread each week. She recently told us, Hudson asked her how old the starter was. The starter that she's been using is 45 years old. 45 years old. That's... I did the math this morning. That's over 14,000 loaves of bread. And if you saw her, you would know that she's not eating this bread. She's skinny as a rail. She's giving it away. In a season of her life where she could constantly be scanning the horizon for help, the Lord has blessed her with health this long. And she's doing honest work as long as she's able with her hands to share with others who are in need. What an incredible testimony of God's goodness. And the heavens look at this 90-year-old woman and they smile and rejoice because she's reflecting her father so well. So we're learning to walk in this new life in Christ. That's the third sinful habit to break is stealing from others. And the godly practice that we pursue instead is honest work. And why? Because the needs around us are abundant. And that brings us to the fourth Sinful habit to break as we learn to walk this new life in Christ. Unwholesome speech. Unwholesome speech. Stop it, Paul says. That's not you. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk. You see how resolute he is? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. The word corrupting is the same word used for rotten wood or rotten fruit or stinky, withered flowers. 
and plants. Jesus used it of worthless fruit in Matthew 7 and of rancid fish in Matthew 13. A better word for this would be putrid or foul or disgusting talk coming out of your mouth. There would be several iterations of this, like foul language or obscene vulgarity or perverted joking or cursing, slander and speech that tears others down. In Matthew 12, Jesus declares that people would have to render account on the day of judgment every careless word they speak. And Paul says, do not let it come out of your mouth. It's a sinful habit that we have to learn to break. Now, as, as I was thinking through where I see this most commonly employed in, in my world, I think of grumbling, complaining. Consider how common that is in your life. If you think through your life, your work life, your, your home life, friends and, and family, how common grumbling or complaining is in our society. I wonder if we were to take stock in this church and, and just see how we're doing with this. I'm hopeful that we would, we would poll a little bit better, a little bit dif- different than the world, but, but there are days that I'm not so sure because it's something I'm struggling with. How often do we grumble or complain within our homes or at work when there's opportunity or at church when we gather with other members of this body and we may grumble or complain about something that we we don't like? Often on family vacations, and I realized uh, this past vacation when we went to D.C. that I do it every time. Um, and Jessica, at some point, will have to push pause and we'll have to have a little meeting where we just say, OK, everybody. And it happened in a hotel room uh, this time, our first night where we were just you know, by ourselves. And it, it, it normally goes something like this. Please. And it's coming from my heart because I'm struggling with wanting to complain and wanting to grumble. Please, let's be careful not to plunge ourselves into despair because our blizzard wasn't mixed well enough. Or the hotel wasn't fully staffed. Or the food wasn't incredible. Or the bed wasn't comfortable enough. The list goes on and on. And we can become wretched in our incredible journeys on vacation and miss out on how truly blessed we are. We start carrying it around with us. Like Pigpen carrying that nasty blanket with him. We become short with others. And if you were to get down to it, the reason you why you grumble and why you complain... Why I do is because we think that what's happening to us or around us is beneath us. We think we deserve much better than what we're getting. We become self-absorbed. Do you see that? And the more you give in to this old sinful habit, the more you invite others into this pit with you. It robs God of the recognition he is due for being a generous and gracious and life-giving God. Think through your day tomorrow. Just, just tomorrow. Just think how many opportunities there are where people are welcoming you into their pit of grumbling and complaining. Or you welcoming them into yours. So what's the godly practice to pursue to fight this old habit? Encourage one another, he tells us. Encourage one another. But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. Stop grumbling 
And start looking for ways to speak encouragement into the situation. Be a positive person. Edifying speech is like pure water in a terrible drought. There's a drought all around us every day. The culture is, is it's, it's the, I mean, you, you can't get away from grumbling and complaining. Edifying speech is like pure water in a terrible drought. But why? Why? We're given two motivating reasons, but I'm combining them into one. Why should we get rid of those old sinful habits of corrupt speech and pursue encouraging one another. Why? The Holy Spirit yearns for grace to be lavished on us. Why? Why do we do this? Because the Holy Spirit is yearning, right now yearning, for grace to be lavished upon us. He says, Only say those things that are good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It grieves the Holy Spirit of God. Paul literally writes here, the Spirit, the Holy One of God. It's the only time in the New Testament that we're, it's called the Holy Spirit of God. He wants to emphasize who he is and who we're grieving. He is the Holy One. And he can be grieved by our actions. Such an intimate friend to us can be grieved. Why? When we take part in slander or grumbling or complaining or arguing or seething and sulking, clamming up, blowing up, cursing, it withdraws all compassion. It's the anti-God. It goes against everything that God is. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that he lavished onto us the riches of his grace. And here he's saying it would give grace to those who hear. He's, he's connecting. The Holy Spirit's work is to lavish grace on us. And how does he do it? By encouraging one another. And it grieves him when we do not. There's a sense too when we grieve the Holy Spirit. I'm sure you have felt it. A sense of sadness. When you've sinned, maybe you've just taken part in, in slander. And you knew you should have gotten out of that conversation, but you jumped into the conversation and you slandered somebody, even a brother or sister in Christ, and you knew you shouldn't have. And you walk away. We should be saddened. We've grieved the Holy Spirit of God. And that Spirit is in us. We could actually praise God that there's a sadness that accompanies that, the after effects. But as fearful as it may be, notice Paul, Paul is not appealing to us out of fear. He's not saying the Holy Spirit's going to leave you, but rather he's appealing to us out of love. You were sealed for the day of redemption. Consider if if David Burnett and I were having a conversation and I was considering doing something that would grieve my wife, Jessica, terribly. And David looks at me and he says, you don't want to do that. She's going to get her revenge. He wouldn't say that. So that could be true. I don't know. 
most likely he would say something like this. You don't want to do that. She loves you. She has stuck with you for 20 years, much longer than any of us would have stuck with you. She's been, there was a loud amen. She's been by your side for 20 years now. She's not leaving you. She's seen you at your worst. She's not going anywhere. That is a great motivation. And this is not some nice sentiment to make us feel warm, to, to all of a sudden just, you know, want to speak the truth or encourage one another. It's not just that this is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God will not abandon you. His sealing of you implies security. I mean, if it were up to me, I would have left me a long time ago, but I'm glad it's not up to me. The sealing of you has happened. It says you were sealed. The Ephesians' perseverance and grace was secured. He's talking to thieves and liars, but he's telling them, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. You, Christian, have been sealed. And this security lasts beyond the grave. You, Christian, struggling with your sin, you will not be abandoned. Not now, not ever. And it should bring you great joy that Paul is telling Christians to stop lying, stealing, cursing, tearing each other down. He says, you were sealed. Even if your current behavior doesn't show this, you were sealed. And one day, you and I will no longer have to struggle with sin. Rejoice and get to work for his glory. The Holy Spirit has sealed you. So we're learning to walk in this new life in Christ. And that's the fourth sinful habit to to break, unwholesome speech. And the godly practice to pursue is to encourage one another. The reason to do this is the Holy Spirit yearns to lavish us with grace. And it brings us to the fifth sinful habit to break as we learn to walk with this, this new life in Christ. Hostility. There are several simple behaviors and habits that Paul mentions here that we must break away from. Verse 31 says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Get get rid of all kinds of destructive attitudes. Go to war against these sinful attitudes. Stop saying things that tear people down. We don't have time to pick apart each of these different habits, sinful habits, bitterness and wrath and anger clamor, slander, all forms of malice. We've actually kind of covered them previously when we talked about anger. To be honest, verse 31 seems to be Paul sort of summing up this old lifestyle. And I would summarize this with the word hostility. Hostility towards one another and hostility towards God. That's the old us. And we've all had a hard time pulling ourselves out of this old sinful habit, but Paul has told us already in Ephesians 2 that Jesus Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility between us and through the cross, killed the hostility between us and God. So what can we say about the godly practice to pursue in response to hostility? In in the place of hostility, what godly practice do we pursue? What, and then what reasons do we have to change? We, we have to go there because if we don't go here, we've wasted our time. Everything I've said before this is a waste. What new reality are we to embrace? What godly practice are we to pursue? And here it is. Look at what God has done. Verse 32, be kind and compassionate. 
but be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. How do you imitate something that you're not watching, that you're not looking at? Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the key. Look at what God has done. I heard Tim Keller speak of life change this way. He said, look at what Jesus has done for you. And if you do that, then by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be changed. God in Christ forgave us. Verse 32. Keller pointed out that lots of world religions, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, even humanism, You'll hear commands very similar to verses 25 through 32, like stop lying and tell the truth or or treat others in a kind way or uh, you should you should forgive other people. Stop stealing, serve others. Don't gossip. You'll hear these things in all religions. And typically, if you will act in these ways and you do a really good job of it, you'll be accepted by God or a higher power. But Christianity says we are to act this way because we are miracle of miracles accepted by God. Most religions tell us that we should be kind to one another because it's the right thing to do. But Christianity tells us to be kind, tender hearted to one another, forgiving one another because God in Christ forgave you. Other religions will say your drive to be good will propel you. And Christianity says your new identity will propel you. Your beloved children. Verse one. My good father in his goodness has spoken to me. How could I keep going on with this unwholesome talk? I'm his child. That's not how he speaks. I'm his child. That's not who I am. Look at what God has done by Christ giving himself up for us. John Owen said that we are never nearer Christ than when we find ourselves lost in a holy amazement at his unspeakable love. We're never nearer Christ than when we find ourselves lost in a holy amazement at his unspeakable love. Religions will tell you to be better. But Christianity tells us to look at the only one who was better, the only one who was perfectly good, who could not have been better. Look at what he's done for me. Look at what he's done for you. He did not withhold his son from from me or you. And we think, how could I withhold anything in my life from him? For those of you that are not trusting in Christ, maybe you've just not come to the point where you trusted in what Christ has done for you. Do you not know that Christ has obeyed perfectly for you? He was sent by God to come and live a perfect life and go to the cross and die a sinner's death, a death that you and I deserve. He didn't sin. Look at what God has done for you. And it takes simple faith what Christ did for you will make you acceptable in his sight. Christian, it's not enough to stop doing all of these sinful practices. This is not the self-improvement plan in Ephesians chapter 4, as if the Christian life is staying away from sin. That's, that's still important to us. It's, it's easy to view sanctification as a moral self-improvement project. It's tempting to think that God's goal is just to make us a better individual than we are now. But his desired outcome is not simply a better me who has found peace and gotten my act together. Forgiven people don't simply rest in peace because 
their restless sins, corrosive guilt, their dark shame. They've now been paid for and they've been covered. You now have the goodness and mercy of God to bring to others. Knowing your beloved child does not leave you complacent and self-satisfied. You're beloved so that you're able to love, to give your life away for others. This is the giving impulse of God. Anytime God loves, he's giving for God to love the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is how we know what love is. God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for us. To close, David uh, Pallison has pointed out what he believes to be the most riveting description of the goal of Christian living that he's ever read. And it's from the great theologian uh, from Princeton Seminary, B.B. Um, Warfield. He preached a sermon on imitating the incarnation of Christ. He says this. Christ did not cultivate self, even his divine self. He took no account of himself. He was led by his love for others into the world to forget himself and the needs of others, to sacrifice self once for all upon the altar of sympathy. Self-sacrifice brought Christ into the world and self-sacrifice will lead us, his followers, not away, not away from, but into the midst of men. Whenever men suffer, there we will be to comfort. Wherever men strive, there we will be to help. Wherever men fail, there we will be to uplift. Wherever men succeed, there we will be to rejoice. Self-sacrifice means not indifference in our times and our fellows. It means absorption into them. It means forgetfulness of self and others. It means entering into every man's hopes and fears, longings and despairs. It means many-sidedness of spirit, multiform activity, multiplicity of sympathies. It means not that we should live one life, but a thousand lives, binding ourselves to a thousand souls by the filaments of so loving a sympathy that their lives become ours. It means that all the experiences of men shall smite our souls and shall beat and batter these stubborn hearts of ours into fitness for their heavenly home. It is, after all, then, the path to the highest possible development by which alone we can be truly made men. Basically, be imitators of God. Watch Him and be amazed. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll begin to walk as Jesus walked. So it's now a privilege of us to spend time together at the close of the service, to take the Lord's Supper together. In view of what Christ has done for us, we now as a family get to celebrate this together. Brothers and sisters, as John Owen said, we are never nearer Christ than when we find ourselves lost in a holy amazement at His unspeakable love. That's what the Lord's Supper is. It's a recognition of Christ's unspeakable love for us. So if you're taking the Lord's Supper or if you're distributing the Lord's Supper, would you come down um, to, to the front? The Lord's Supper is a meal that's reserved for followers of Jesus who are in good standing of, uh, with their church family. And who are not living in an unrepentant sin. It's a time where we come together to celebrate with a little bit of solemnity, but also with a lot of joy. Of what Jesus had done for us at the cross. Would you pray with me? God, as we come together to take the Lord's Supper, we, we, want, we, we want to rightly see Jesus.
that on the night that he was betrayed, broke the bread and said, this is going to happen to me for your sins. The shedding of my blood would be for you. So, Father, in this time, may we rightly recognize that. May we embrace Christ. Father, help us to put off the old habits and put on the new, to put on Christ, to act as your dearly beloved children. And we pray all these things, not for our own good and our own betterment, Father, but for your good and your glory, Lord, in the building of this church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.